Hello, good morning. Firstly, apologies if some of you have seen some part of this presentation before. I know I've been doing the rounds and I recognise one or two faces. So, um, if you have, then I hope you'll at least get some new perspective on it. The other apology is I'm going to have to keep turning round. I brought my own laptop and a remote control so that I could um, engage and all of that connects up here. And you also don't get the nice future learn fonts. So, future learn. Um, this is what it is and where it is now. So there are 130 courses um, that have been offered through the future learn platform from 40 partners. There are, I think, nine partners being um, announced this week, including the first partner from France. Um, the first one from Latin America, um, new Asian partners. So it's very much moved from being a UK-focused um, operation to being a global operation, and particularly um, with developments in, in Asia uh, and in Latin America. A very broad range of business, health, science and arts courses, um, broader than some of the other MOOC platforms um, that are focused more on science-related courses. Right from the beginning, and I'm, this is what I'm going to be talking about, um, there was a commitment to build a new platform and a responsive platform, which means it runs equally well on mobile phones, on tablet computers, and on laptops. And in fact, um, the future and design team designed first for small form factors and then scale it up to, to make sure that everything runs on small devices. Now, that's caused problems um, for some of the content, for instance, a virtual microscope for the Moon's course, and trying to get that to run on um, a mobile phone is not easy, and arguably the experience is not good on a mobile phone, but at least it does run all of the content and all of the activities run on small devices. And 25% of um, accesses now are on... Um, tablets or um, mobile phones. So that's a large percentage of people who are accessing on mobile devices. You heard before about Open Learn and um, uh, open accessible content. Uh, FutureLearn um, strongly urges all of the um, partners to provide content that is um, open uh, and freely available um, to, uh, to to share, to copy, to download. Um, all of the videos can be downloaded. Um, not all of the partners can provide fully open content. For instance, there may be content printers licensed by the BBC. There have been um, partnership courses with the BBC. But um, the other thing is it's not enough just to have content um, that you can download. You have to be able to find that content. You have to be able to uh, access it. And so one of the developments that's happened at the moment is um, to make the FutureLearn content searchable and accessible from the open web. So that you can search for it on Google or other search engines. Uh, and you can also share that content with other people outside the courses. What happens when um, you access that the URL for that content element, a step in FutureLearn parlance, is that you will be taken to that page. You can access that video or that text and then it will provide a link into the course, so you can then uh, continue with that course if you want to, or register for that course, um, starting from that content element. 
over 1 million um, people have now signed up to the platform, and there have been over 2 million course sign-ups. And one of the particularly heartening aspects is that um, about 60% are female, which again is a different demographic split to some of the other MOOC platforms. And you probably know, it was set up, it was formally launched in October 2013 as a company wholly owned by the Open University. So we wholly own the FutureLearn company. And the CEO of FutureLearn uh, is Simon Nelson. And there is a team of around 25 software developers uh, and about 50 people altogether, uh, including a marketing team, uh, a content development team who work with the partners to design their content, uh, and other strategy um, people at the <coughs> company. My role is that I work two days a week now on secondment to FutureLearn as academic lead and three days a week in IET. So I do straddle both camps, um, which gives me a kind of unique perspective um, of from the Open University but also from FutureLearn. And I'd be happy as far as I'm able to talk about it either from an OU perspective or from a FutureLearn perspective because I'm quite aware that there are different perspectives on FutureLearn depending on whether you're sitting inside the offices in the British Library in London or whether you're sitting in IET or KMI or um, Open Media Unit at the OU. But let's, let's go back a bit <coughs> to 2012 and what was called then Project Kylo. Um, so it wasn't even called Future at that point. It was called Kylo, Kylo because a Kylo is a sort of Highland cow, as in moo cow. Um, and that's what the code name for FutureLearn was back in 2012. And there were a few of us who were starting to hear about this project called Kylo, and we put two and two together and thought that it might be the OU trying to move into the MOOC area. And then Martin Bean asked me um, to take on a role as academic lead and also to work together with some other senior people across the campus to provide a kind of brains trust to um, inform the design of the platform and the design of the future learn proposition. So that's where we were in 2012. And that was the kind of landscape in 2012. There was already talk about um, how MOOCs failed. Um, even then, um, is were, are they failing to deliver what um, they had promised in terms of completion rates, uh, in terms of the quality of the learning experience? And so one of the things we wanted to do was to rethink what a learning experience for MOOCs would be. One of the first decisions was, should we go for Moodle? Um, and from the OU, particularly from IT's perspective, the answer was obvious. Yes, I mean, Moodle is our platform, and what we should do is um, then extend that for um, open courses. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, um, and for quite good reasons. I mean, the two main reasons why we didn't go for Moodle was, firstly, that the scale. That we, the Open University is the largest user of Moodle, uh, as far as I know, still the largest user of Moodle in the world, but we were pushing the limits. Um, if we wanted to go a factor larger uh, and have you know, a million users on the platform with two million course sign-ups, it wasn't at all clear that Moodle would be able to cope with that scale. You wanted to have a scalable, cloud-based, modern platform that if you know, another 
100,000 people suddenly came onto the site, you just spun up some more servers. That's the way it goes now with cloud-based systems. And the other reason was pedagogy, that Moodle was based around a kind of US-based instructional design course delivery pedagogy, and we wanted to rethink the learning experience from scratch. There were CMOOCs and XMOOCs at that time, where CMOOCs was a kind of assemble-it-yourself approach to, uh, to MOOCs, where you put together, in collaboration with uh, a wide range of learners, uh, you assemble the resources that you need to be able to study a course. And it was based um, on a, a, a constructivist and a connectivist approach to learning, where people learn by connecting together uh, their knowledge and their resources. But the problem was, it was rather like sort of early hypertext fiction, um, where um, it was great in principle, and it was a really nice theory, but in practice, it took a lot of effort, and it wasn't terribly pleasurable. And then there were ex-MOOCs, which were this idea of delivering a lecture-type experience, but delivering it at a distance. And again, as we all know, and as you're experiencing now, there are problems with the lecture format in that you know, it's, not, it's a one-way transmission, you're not having a dialogue, um, you're not able to, um, to converse and to collaborate during that experience. So we wanted to develop a pedagogy-informed design that works at massive scale. There was also a team who had come in from BBC Digital, um, led by Simon Nelson, and he quite naturally got together other people um, from BBC Digital. And so there was right from the beginning this creative tension of people from BBT Digital saw content as being supreme, particularly high-quality content, and then you created um, a proposition around that content. Whereas from the OU, the starting point was learning and the quality of learning and how could you enable learning, of which content was one aspect of that but not the only aspect. So there was an interesting creative tension right at the start. And we had to implement it in six months, which didn't just mean you know, producing the first draft of a platform, but hiring the entire um, development team. And the development team was hired in about two to three weeks. Now, can you imagine the OU hiring a complete development team in two to three weeks? You have to do that, get the platform underway, have pedagogy-informed design, and get the first courses, trial courses, up and running within six months. So it was a big challenge. So how did we do it? So one of the things that um, at the OU um, we were keen to do was to have pedagogy-informed design. Um, so we went to sources like John Hattie's book, Visible Learning, which if you haven't seen it, I really do suggest you look at it. Um, what John Hattie did, he synthesised over 800 meta-studies of affected learning. So it was a life's work of his to try and take these meta-studies of what makes effective learning and then synthesise these studies. Um, mostly classroom-based, so you know, do small class sizes lead to effective outcomes, but then things like um, does the quality of the teacher lead to more effective outcomes, does more examining lead to more effective outcomes, and so on. And to cut a long story short, what he said is what is most important is that teaching is visible to the student and learning is visible to the teacher. The more the student becomes a teacher, the more the teacher becomes a learner, the more successful are the outcomes. 
that basically summarizes his 20 years of study, that if you can make learning more visible to the teacher and the learner uh, and more transparent, then it can become more successful. We also, um, this uh, paper in Science by Meltzoff and colleagues on the new science of learning, building on work from um, cognition, but also from neuroscience, um, from machine learning. One of the uh, conclusions of that paper was a key component is the role of the social in learning. What makes social interaction such a powerful catalyst for learning? And that was left as a question in that paper, not as an answer. And so we pulled together some of these main findings from um, uh, other um, learning scientists, educational um, innovators, around these aspects. Visible, so making learning visible and allowing uh, the learners to set their own goals and work towards those goals. Reputation and reward, so having again making their progress visible and providing people with tangible rewards. Supporting collaborative learning, enabling people to learn together. Providing timely review and feedback. Um, supporting formative assessment and mastery learning. And empowering the educators, because the educators are a limited resource on the platform, as we know. And so we need to make the best use of those people who are in an educator or facilitator role. We haven't achieved all of this, but what I'll talk about is how far future learners got towards that. And the other thing is that it's not enough just to adopt methods from previous platforms. You have to rethink it for massive scale. For a wide variety of learners with different abilities, different nationalities, and learning self-motivation rather than credit. So how do you do that? Well, firstly, some educational methods get worse as you try to scale them up. So sports coaching. You know, it works for two or three people. Um, Ten, it's getting difficult. A hundred or a thousand. It really just it would get worse and worse the more people you have. Some pretty much the same, um, however large the scale, lecturing, testing, um, that I can be lecturing to you, um, be lecturing online to uh, however many hundred people. If it was a TV broadcast, it could be a million people. The experience is pretty much the same, which is why XMOOCs work. It's not a lot worse than um, a classroom lecture. But which educational methods actually get better with scale? That's what we were interested in. You may have come across Metcalfe's Law, which says that for some network systems the value of the product or service increases with the number of people using it. So the telephone network is a good example. When you only had a telephone system with two or three people in the early um, 20th century, it wasn't terribly useful. The more people who join a telephone system, particularly international subscribers, the more successful it gets. The more you can phone people from wherever you are using mobile devices, the better it gets. So it, the value increases with the number of people using it. But of course, people aren't just data points on a network. Um, it, to support learning, you need to have networks that support conversations for learning. Conversations that enable people to share things that are new, important, timely, understandable, appropriate, and trusted. So 
we have to think about how people connect rather than just how data connects. We need to develop effective social networks for learning. And also, learning networks are two-sided. Um, and for a two-sided network, both sides need to benefit. So with telephone systems, for instance, you've got the subscribers and the telephone companies. For education, you've got the learners and the educators at the first pass. Both need to benefit. So the learners need opportunities to learn. Educators need opportunities to teach. You need ease of use. And you need to manage complexity because the bigger a system gets from the educator's side, the more complex it gets. And they need to have ways to manage that complexity. And for the learners, you need a value that increases with scale. And for the educators, you need to gain insight from that large scale. So around here, and I'm going to talk about this later, you've got two aspects. One is social networking and techniques from social networking to manage that complexity. And the other is analytics. So how analytics can allow you to gain insight from scale. So what we came down to is um, a, an approach to designing the platform based on learning as conversation. Um, now it goes back to the work of Gordon Pask, who has, for those of you who know, has had an interesting association with the OU going right back to the 1970s. Uh, and some of the OU's approaches were based on the work of Gordon Pask, who was a, uh, a visiting fellow at the OU. Um, and also more recently, Diana Lorillard and her conversational framework. Now what I did um, in about early 2013 was show this to development team at FutureLearn, along with various other models of learning. And this was the one that they got. This was the one that they understood. Partly because it's an implementable model. Some of the other models of learning, you can't see obviously how you can implement it. With this, you can see how you can implement it. Because each of these are lines of collaboration, lines of communication and conversation. You've got a learner who is working with some medium to solve a problem, to access information, to build a model. That medium might just be a video, or it might be something like a... Um, now in future, let me call it an exercise step, something you interact with. That learner is also reflecting on what they're doing. So you've got this internal conversation. But you've also got partners. This partner could be an educator, or it could be another learner. And you've got conversations at the level of actions, what it is that you're doing. Um, and so uh, talking about a particular video, for example... But you've got conversations also at the level of the descriptions, why you're doing it, what you're trying to achieve, what the purpose of your learning is. And you need some, here, some other media to support those sorts of higher level conversations. So as I say, the design team got it, and they set about trying to um, basically design a platform that supports those sorts of conversations. So how can you enable effective conversations for learning at the levels of action about things that you're doing, and also descriptions about concepts about why you're doing it for hundreds of thousands of people from many cultures. And one of the things I should mention is that this scales, because you're not re relying just on a one-way transmission of information, nor are you relying on um, a... Uh, coaching just with an educator. This partner could be an educator or it could be another learner. learner. And it's not just a one-way 
um, transmission. It's a conversation. It's a process of collaboratively coming to know, of trying to understand by sharing perspectives. So let me show you now how it's actually working in progress. So let's skip forward now a year and a half to how it's actually working in progress. I'll give you the example first from the most popular course in terms of the number of learners, which is the British Council, one with 120,000 um, people who signed up for that course. And the rerun, um, which is just about to start, has got about 110,000. So um, that's, these are big courses. Um, it's called Exploring English Language and Culture. And as the name suggests, it's for people who want to not just learn English, but to learn uh, about uh, extending their knowledge of the English language and to understand about English culture. So far greater percentage, I think it's about 80% of the learners on this platform are from outside the UK. So that's got a particular challenge. That's, for those of you who haven't seen the FutureLearn platform, that's what it looks like when you go into the platform. You see the to-do list. So again, visible learning, trying to make at a glance where you are and what you're doing visible. So I'm in week one, that's what that arrow says. I've got halfway through week one and I've also dipped into week three. Um, and as it happens, this course is completely finished. It's all turned blue um, because it's one in the past. If it was still running, it would show red up to where the course had got to in terms of the weeks. And then for each week, you can then see here this to-do list of things that I've done uh, and things that I've still got to do. And I'll just show you this one here, but it's after the introduction to the course, and it's called uh, Introducing the Topic, What Does English Feel Like? And you may just be able to see that there. It says, um, so watch Nicole introduce this week's topic. Um, it's a video, and it's had 17,848 comments. So that one video has had over 17,000 comments. So... One of the things we genuinely didn't know at the start was whether people would be willing to converse. Um, what we didn't want to do was to send them off to separate forums where they just conversed about the course. Part of that conversing at the level of actions was that you had conversations relating directly to the content. Now, um, what we found, to our surprise, is not only are they willing to converse, but they're willing to converse at massive scale. Now that brings problems if you're used to the sort of Moodle, um, traditional PLE um, platform, because you, you, know, you then get people saying, where's the threaded discussions? Um, how can you cope with 17,000 conversations? The answer to that is you don't try to. What you've got is you've got a kind of water cooler or common room conversation that's going on beside each piece of content. And what I would typically do if I'm looking at this course is that firstly I would just look at the most recent ones. See what people are talking about. And maybe scroll down a couple of pages just to see what people are talking about. And then click on the most liked. There, the most. So you've got everyone following most liked in my comments. And what the most liked um, shows you is um, the top... Um, contributions in terms of the other people who have liked them. 
but you've not only got the top contributions, but you've also got the discussion. So almost always, if somebody likes a contribution, there's going to be a discussion after it about why they liked it, their responses to it. And so that's the way to get into the interesting discussions. And for the educators or the facilitators, typically what they would do is also do the same. They would go to the most light, and then they would add some educator or facilitator comments to it. The advantage of that is that you've also got following up there. So what you can do is you can follow any of the people who have contributed, and um, the course encourages learners to follow the facilitators or follow the educator. So if the facilitator puts up responsive to one of these most likes, then the people who follow that facilitator will also see that the educators comment in context and will go to that. So what you've got is some of the social network techniques coming in to try and um, manage and orchestrate and filter some of that content. Um, so it's a very different way of engaging with, say, a structured discussion on a, um, a VLE platform where you might expect to read all of the content. In this, in no way can you, and should you. And then, if you follow somebody, you go to their um, personal page. So another principle of FutureLearn was that not only the content, but also the people should be open. So you don't use aliases. You use people's real names um, there and get some information about them. But also, importantly, all of the contributions that they've made. Not just in that course, but in other courses as well. And then you can click and go to where that contribution was made. You can look at that comment. Um, and you can see she's got 60 followers following 50 people. So you're starting to bring in social network techniques here. Um, and that's the, that was the person who had the most comments on the... Um, uh, that first video, uh, piece of video content. This is uh, another comment that she's made. Hi, Harold. The last thing you said is also very important. Outside an English-speaking country, speaking English gives you some points on your CV. It's a door opener to your career. Hi, Giselle. The truth is I don't know about Maltese. So she's responding to other people. So then you would click on, um, on that, and you would go to the context in which you made that comment. And you would see then who she was responding to, but also in the context of that step, that piece of learning content as well. So that's how those sorts of different types of threads, threads of social networking, work on the FutureLearn platform. One thing I should say um, is that that was only meant to be sort of half of um, the converse learning conversations. I'll show you a little bit later about the peer review which was an, um, another way to extend that. We also uh, intended right at the beginning to support small group conversations so that people could work together with small groups of peers, particularly on projects and for uh, especially important CPD, for workplace training, um, but also to be able to follow around small groups of your peers, uh, interest groups, that's still not on the platform for various reasons, and it's still, I think, still lost on that platform. So these weren't meant to be the only types of conversation. Um, there were meant to be other types of conversations on the platform. That, one of the things we had to do was also um, relate that back to, as I say, the people who came from the BBC, because they weren't... You know, 
neutral participants. They came in with their own vision, their own perspective of how the future learning platform would work. And um, the content, the product lead at FutureLearn kind of summarised their perspective in this, in terms of this product vision. Inspiring learning for life through telling stories, provoking conversation, celebrating progress. In our terms, the provoking conversation is around the conversations for learning, the conversational framework. Celebrating progress is around visible learning, um, John Hattie's work. The telling stories... That was interesting because I think that was genuinely a BBC perspective that had been brought in around scheduling, around catch-up, around storytelling. And I was a bit sceptical at the start about it. Um, We're not trying to create soap operas, BBC programmes. But it's been interesting. Um, One of another very successful course um, on... uh, Future Learn has been the introduction to forensic science. And that course was designed specifically around narrative and storytelling. So it's for people who um, are interested, they've seen CSI, they've watched TV programs about forensic science, but don't really know what forensic science is, but would like to find out more. And the way they structured this course was um, around each week they had a reconstruction of a genuine murder. Um, a murder that happened in the 1980s in somebody's car. Um, the driver of the car had been murdered. And they recreated this murder scene. Uh, and no expense was spared. They got from one of the educators' cars and they drove it out to a remote spot and got a video camera and um, videoed it. And it looked pretty good. Um, and then each week they used a different forensic technique to try and uncover what happened. So footprint analysis, blood analysis. So, But it wasn't just done in the abstract. Um, you, as a learner, were expected to carry out those techniques. So for the fingerprint analysis, for example, um, to take your own fingerprints. So you look back at the video about fingerprint identification, and then you go through a sequence of steps to take your own fingerprint. Um, and then the idea was that having done that yourself, or done a footprint analysis, or even taken blood samples, so it was about also how to take your own blood sample and to analyse that, you could then be more informed about solving that, that murder mystery. And so there is a snap from that, that video. And what happened was the sorts of conversations were really interesting. These were people who were trying very hard to solve the murder, to share their insights, um, both their sort of um, general knowledge, their um, hunches about the murder, but also using those specific forensic techniques. Um, So this one here, um, Rita Raymond, you can just see her down here. This wasn't the most liked, it was just the most recent comments um, that I found when I went to that page. Right at the bottom here, Rita Raymond. The information in this video raised more suspicions. Mr. Duggan gave the wrong address, which seemed so contrary to the happening, as he was the one who called the police at the crime scene. Mr. Ward went opposite to the road he came from. Those fingerprints might be of Mr. Ward, who would have opened the door for his wife, but how did they match the database of a criminal? If so, then why would he kill his wife? And so on. And then you went to Rita Raymond, and... 
here is her profile, and then she'd been active not just in that um, week, but in other ones, about DNA's database, benefits limitations in your country's DNA database. So you can see the sorts of conversations on that platform that was based very much around that week's story, that week's episode. And it encouraged people to continue. It's had one of the highest completion rates of the courses. And um, at the end, on the last week at 8 o'clock on the Friday, they had the grand reveal where the educators put up onto the platform who had actually done it, because it was a real case, um, the outcome of that case. And literally people were pulling over at the side of the road so that they could get the, um, the answer to, the, um, to who did it. Uh, at the last week of the course. So that was one example of making use of storytelling. Interestingly, when that course was first designed, they didn't think about it in terms of storytelling. And it was the, uh, the what they call the, the content team at FutureLearn, many of whom are ex-BBC, who worked with um, the uh, Strathclyde team to think about how you could create narrative, how you could do storytelling on that course, and it worked. It doesn't work for every course, but in that case, it worked very successfully. So, um, step back a bit. What kind of learning activities get better at massive scale? So conversation, um, being able to share multiple perspectives, and as the FutureLearn platform expands and we get people from different countries, you're getting very interesting perspectives coming in, bringing, um, don't you remember back there, Ada Ryman talking about DNA databases and her country's DNA database. So you're getting national perspectives, you're getting cultural perspectives coming in. So conversation does seem to improve at larger scale. Social network learning, so finding people to study with, through following, through liking and profiles. The more opportunities to study, so long as you can use social networking techniques effectively, then the better it gets at larger scale. I'll talk in a minute about peer review. Small group discussion. Um, if there are more people on the platform at the time, then there are opportunities to get together people who are contemporaneously on the platform to hold a small group discussion. But also, the more of your friends that go onto the platform, the more opportunities there are for small group discussion. And I think this is still something that needs to be developed for future learning. Game-based learning, um, there are, we know through, for instance, Minecraft or World of Warcraft, the bigger the environment gets, particularly if that game-based learning is situated in some virtual world then the more people who can be creating that world and sharing it with other people, the better it gets. And inquiry learning. Uh, I just want to use this to do a short advert for another project that we're working on, um, which is the Inquiry platform. And I do hope you'll go and visit it. www.inquire-it.org. Um, and Thea down there was one of the researchers on that. It's part of the Open Science Lab and it's intended to support inquiry-based learning and citizen science. So getting people not only to take part in citizen science activities, but to create their own ones called missions. Um, and again, the bigger it gets, the more people who create these missions for other people to use, the more effective it's going to be. So we've been looking actively at what sorts of um, learning gets better with scale. 
And the last one I want to mention for future learn is peer review. Um, the other platforms, like Coursera and edX, have mixed together peer review and peer assessment. We deliberately separated them out. So the peer review, the only purpose of peer review is to get constructive commentary from your peers. And the way it works is that you're expected to um, write an assignment according to a structured rubric, a short assignment taking about 20 to 25 minutes. Once you've completed that assignment, you then submit it and it goes into a pool. You then get yourself an assignment off that pool to review. And you're expected to give a structured review, usually three-part review, of that assignment. And then once you've done that, uh, you're given another assignment and you're uh, expected to do two or three assignments um, to review. And by the time you finish that, um, you'll start to get back reviews on your assignment. It normally is about three to four hours before you start getting back reviews on your assignment. Um, and so the idea is that you have a conversation, in this case, around the assignment and the review on the assignment. There is still more work that can be done than that, to have direct conversations with um, all of the reviewers on your assignment, for example. And that's something, again, that's on the to-do list for FutureLearn, on the schedule for FutureLearn platform development. So that's this kind of pedagogy approach towards FutureLearn, trying to build a platform around an explicit pedagogy. What I want to do for five minutes, because I'm going to stop at about quarter two, is to just talk a little about the analytics, because I know the people here who like numbers. So what we wanted to do was to use analytics for a purpose. Um, so analytics to inform and to enable successful course design in three different areas. One is transactional, so who viewed what, when did they view it, on what device, the sort of things you get from Google Analytics. Secondly, interactional. How did people interact with the learning design? And thirdly, conversational. What did people talk about? Who did they talk to? So these are the top-level analytics for FutureLearn. Um, uh, if you take 100% as people who signed up for the course, so for any course, if you take all of the people who signed up for that course, that's what FutureLearn calls a joiners. Um, on average, so this is across all of the courses so far in FutureLearn, about half of those who joined, signed up for the course, actually started the course. And often there's a gap of two or three months between signing up for the course, when you go off and do another course or do something else. Now obviously, what FutureLearn is trying to do is to make all of these as high as possible, because the more people who come onto the course, the more people are likely to complete it, and so on. At the moment it's about half. We've got comparative figures from other platforms. We've managed to trawl through the literature. It's about the same on edX and Coursera for that. Um, active learners are people who've marked at least one step as complete. Now, FutureLearn is different from other platforms in that you have to explicitly say, press the mark as complete button to say that you've marked a step as complete. 84% have marked at least one step as complete. Um, it's about the same as edX. We've been, in edX, um, we saw one paper where they were able to track the people who had actually completed a video, who had actually looked through a video, or um, had accessed a piece of learning content. It's about the same. 
Returning learners are people who come back for more than one week. So who finish the first week. And this is one big area that the learning design can make a big difference, we've found. Because um, there are some people who just do a first week, and for good reasons, they've got all they want to out of that first week, particularly if the first week of the course is a kind of overview of the topic. And that's not necessarily a failure from the learner's point of view. They've got what they want to from the course. But if you want returners to learn, uh, the learners to return, then you need to give them a reason for coming back. What is it that you're going to get out of the second week? And so designing the learning so that you can show what the progression is onto the next week has been one of the important developments in future learners learning design. Fully participating learners. So these are learners who mark the majority of steps as complete and done all of the assessments. So this is the future notion of somebody who's finished a course. Um, the comparative figures for edX and Coursera are about 8%. So the, it stands up well. There's a little bit of um, finesse here because this includes also shorter courses at FutureLearn. If you look at just the five-week courses, it's about 17-18%, but it's still higher than the other platforms, about double the other platforms. So in terms of, of the main metric the platforms use to share has this been a success? Future Learn is about double compared with other platforms. And what we're particularly pleased about, or I am particularly pleased about, is social learners. So people who not just look at what other people have commented on, but actually make comments themselves. It varies hugely, but on average it's about um, a third of the learners who actively contribute. But we know that learners take value just from reading other people's comments as well. We know a lot about what time um, people access the platform. For example, there, um, every day you've got a peak there for tablets um, at about 10, 11 o'clock at night, which is people taking their tablet computers to bed and <coughs> doing the course in their tablet computers on bed. And you can start to ask questions. So one question is, how long should a video be? Um, and there's lots of theories about that. What we could actually do is plot. Each point is one video. This is the length of the video. And up here is the percentage of people who don't just exit the video, but exit the platform altogether. In other words, we just quit the course. And you can see that up to about eight minutes, there are not that many, and then suddenly you've got people who are quitting the course. So the answer to the question is no longer than eight minutes. Um, and preferably around five or six minutes. And then we can drill down further, for instance, with peer review. Um, you can look at some gross statistics like this, at how long till you get the first review, the number of words of the assignment. But look at this, for example. This is the number of minutes between first viewing an assignment and submitting the assignment. So having first sight of the assignment and submitting it uh, with a cutoff of two, two and a half hours. But what you've got down here this, up this axis is the number of words of the assignment. You've got somebody who submitted a thousand word assignment in less than a minute. So what's going on? Well, they've copied and pasted, obviously. Um, and basically all of these around here are almost certainly copied and pasted. So you can start to then drill down to see 
what's actually going on with the learning activity. And down here, you've got people who just type rubbish. So, um, type two or three words. So, in fact, now these are not even sent off for review. Um, and these are the problematic ones here. So, you can start to drill down to the individual learner level. Um, and interestingly, uh, one of the things we found was after each peer review, which um, generally had a discussion step where the learners have an explicit step where they just discuss their experience of doing the assignment and the review. Um, firstly, the, the learners like that because it gives them an opportunity to go up to the level of descriptions to talk about their experience of learning. But also we found that 20% of the learners go to that step before they do the peer review. So before they do the assignment, they go and find out what other people thought of it before they actually go and do it themselves. So we're finding that people are not necessarily going through in the linear order through the steps of the course. So to summarise then, how do we design successful open learning at massive scale? It's a combination of pedagogies that get better with scale, or at the very least don't get worse with scale, connected with insightful analytics that allow us to improve the learning design and also the platform design. Um, where we are now, just as a kind of coda to this talk, um, when we started a year and a half ago, the notion of social learning and a social learning platform was genuinely new. You know, the, the platforms that were being developed then were all edX type, um, based on videos and quizzes and around personalised learning. Interestingly, just in the last few months, uh, diversity um, has central uh, discuss. They said that we've met some of the FutureLearn people at a conference recently and said they have borrowed shamelessly from the FutureLearn platform. So they've borrowed the, the platform design from FutureLearn. Uh, and if you go to it, they've got comments associated with content, they've got discussions. Um, and NovaWed. Nilberwed is the social online learning environment, so they've rebranded themselves now as a social learning platform. So it's, it's quite heartening and interesting that um, other platforms now are um, reconceiving themselves as social learning or conversational learning platforms. Thank you. Questions? <laughs> Two questions, but feel free to only answer one if that's all the time you've got. Um, reflecting back on it, <coughs> is there anything you felt you got wrong or you'd like to improve? And the second question, although our context is different, is there anything that we can learn in terms of module design? That's yes, very good, very good questions. I don't think that there is anything that Future Learn has got terribly wrong. Um, the you know, partnerships. Uh, I think if we were doing it again, um, starting with the elite partners, we might not do it that way again, but there were good reasons at that time to start with top 30 universities in the UK, top 200 worldwide, because it wasn't clear that we're, we're going to be able to get uh, a, a, a strong brand to compete with edX and, uh, and Coursera. Um, I don't think anyth they've done anything wrong with the platform. 
I mean, I think it's been an amazing achievement to produce in six months a responsive platform that runs on multiple devices. It's clean. I think the conversational learning works. But I don't think there's, there's been enough. I think there's a lot more to do. Um, and I think that's my personal disappointment, that uh, there was a tremendous um, innovation and development in the first six months. And I don't think that's continued at that pace. Um, sense. There are good reasons for doing for that, because once you get to a million people, then a lot of your development time is just keeping the platform running, and also making sure that it's robust, that it's safe, secure. I mean, security is a huge issue with FutureLearn. Um, and so they basically have a no-bugs policy, which is that everything that they put onto the platform um, must be checked, robust, um, as foolproof, uh, and as foolproof as possible. Um, so although they release code four or five times a day uh, as part of their agile process, it's all very rigorously tested. So it means one consequence of that is that the innovation hasn't been as fast as I would have liked. Um, but I don't think there is anything, you know, I don't think I would have done anything different in terms of either the learning design or the, the course platform. Um, lessons for the OU. I think pedagogy-informed design. Whatever you are going to design, start from what sort of learning you want um, and how you want to achieve that learning. It was a huge opportunity for me because it's something for the last 30 years I've been talking about and then suddenly here was a you know, um, OU putting money into doing that pedagogy-informed design. So it was also <coughs> nerve-wracking as well. But it did work. Um, we did produce a platform that was based around an explicit pedagogy, and that pedagogy did scale up. So it's, um, that's one thing I would say. Think about pedagogy-informed design, and also, let's say, look at learning as conversation, because I think there are... Uh, it's not the only way, um, so we need to keep the quality of our content, we need to keep regression, the badging, the reputation management... All of those things that we do very well, but I think we can also bring in the social network learning aspect as well in a stronger way into some of our efforts at the OU. I'd really like to sort of push that question a bit further. And obviously, with pedagogy-based learning, you're really advocating sort of proper joined-up thinking about the whole thing. But indeed, so um, can can we cheat? Are there any specific kind of features or activities that? you think we can steal from FutureLearn and put into the OEVLE sort of in a simple way? I think the peer review works. Um, yeah. the, again, we didn't know whether it was going to work. We genuinely didn't know whether people would be willing to um, review other people's mm. assignments and whether they'd be willing to review that in a constructive way. Several, several modules are piloting yeah. peer review in Moodle and again finding yeah. that actually where it works, it works very yeah. well. Um, something that hasn't gone onto the platform but we have um, taken to prototype is uh, in your approach to um, peer assessment through um, adaptive comparative judgment, ACJ. That. Yeah. Um, basically with ACJ, instead of um, writing an assignment and sending it out to a peer to give a mark out of 100, what you do is that you, as a learner, you get two assignments and you're asked which one's better than the other one and you just say this one's better than that one you make a holistic judgement and then you get another pair and another pair and um, if 
enough learners review enough assignments in that way, in a quite simple, holistic way, then you can produce a rank ordering of those assignments that can then be scaled if you want to. And it's very successful, it works. Um, it, they've, they've tried it for exam marking, and they're now trying it, for example, on the Coursera platform. If I could ask one further question in that area. Um, LTS have been asked to do something called the Study Experience Programme, which they're working on at the mm -hmm. moment, kind of looking at our learning systems and making recommendations for what the next steps are. Have they engaged with you yet? And if not, would you like them to? Right, I will. I would very much like to engage. I mean, we've had talks about how we might engage in the future, but I would very much like... I think some of the social following in combination with comments yeah. stroke mm -hmm. forums yeah. is potentially very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Ooh, um, just corresponding on, on Tim's question, you seem to have avoided a lot of the problems that are often associated with online social networking. I just wondered, how do you think you managed to achieve that? Were there any special steps that you took to discourage some of the other less beneficial behaviours that you find online? I think we were very fortunate in that when we for the first few courses were mainly, I think, populated by OU alumni. <laughs> um, yeah, because that's where we advertised it first. And they model good practice. And that good practice has continued. And so when people come onto the FutureLearn platform, they now see people being polite and, um, uh, and, um, and generous of their time and their, um, and their effort. And even courses like Muslims in Britain or climate change, where you would expect um, <laughs> dissent, What's happened is that the community has been largely self-regulating. So that you know, if you there were climate change deniers on the climate change course, but the way that we've dealt with was that other learners then said, "Well, yes, that's your views are very interesting, but can you justify it? Can you provide evidence to support your claim?" And then to build it into an academic discussion rather than blaming. Um, I think it's you know, say in large part, it's the good manners of OU students that led the FutureLearn platform. And I don't think that's a lot to do with the design. I think we just got off on the right foot. Um, thanks, Mike. That's really interesting. Um, I actually anticipate a lot of food for thought. Um, the thing that I've been most thinking about is the storytelling bit. Mm -hmm. And with the crime scene and the forensic episode, did the fact that it had a storyline and an answer at the end mean that you can't use it again? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so, because you're getting a different cohort in there. They don't know the answers. So, and I don't think you're going to get people who go on there and spoil the story at the start. I really don't. I mean, it's possible um, that people will come in and say, hey, hey, I've done this course before, and I know what the answer is. It's um, Fred who did it. I don't <coughs> think that's going to happen. It would be interesting to see. I think they're just coming up for the second run of it now, so we'll see, because... One of the reasons was the guy struck Clyde went off the Dundee and there was all sorts of problems as to why they didn't know he would rerun it. So I think that rerun is coming up, so we'll see what, what happens. But no, I don't, I, because you've got a different cohort, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you can't do it again. Any more questions? I had one other smaller point. Yes, you, in one of the slides in the middle was your kind of the progress tracking, and you said, you know, this is our attempt to embed visible learning. And the cynic in me immediately thought, well, actually, 
what you are showing is progress through content. You are not making learning if it is happening visible, and of course that would yeah. be very hard. That's that's a very good point. And one recently, future learners been trying to address that. Mm. So one way is for to get people to set explicit goals. Um, uh, so to have a course goal um, and to make that explicit and to start people discussing that course goal even before the course starts so they've got what they call week, near, week zero or pre-course um, so it's to make the goals of the educator more explicit but also to make learners goals more explicit um, and for instance during the introduction step now many courses say don't just introduce yourself but also say what it is you're trying to achieve on the course, mm -hmm. why you're doing this course and to share it with other people and then to come back to that at the end to say have you achieved your goal um, uh, is there anything that's missing from that course that, uh, that could help you to achieve that goal um, and the educator to join in that discussion at the end to try and help people achieve that, their goals. So to try and make goal setting um, more visible, uh, both to the learner themselves, but also to other learners and to the educators, and to have a more complex progress page as well, so it's not just how you've scored on your quizzes, mm. but for example, um, how to get you to rate how well you're doing in terms mm. of achieving your goals. So there's more to be done with that, uh, and it's something that future learners actively addressing through this pre-course activity, but also explicit goal setting, uh, and then returning to the goals. Yes. Um, and I think, again, that's something that the OU could look at, of how to make the learning more visible, not just through the analytics, but also through explicit goal setting, and getting learners to uh, indicate their learning objectives and their learning processes. I have one final mm. um, You talked about small group discussion. We yes. didn't say much about it. I'm just trying to figure out how it would work. Would that be like a chat? Would it be synchronous? Would it be private? There are a number of different sorts of small group discussions. So one that we did model and do and prototype was what we call the bus model, um, which is uh, you get um, at any particular time, um, you have a small group discussion step. People who are there at that time, at that time of day, um, gather together. So um, you see, that, you, know, you, you might be the first one, then another person you see joining, until there are about 15 or 20 people. It's like getting onto the bus, and then the bus sets off. Then you have uh, a focused, a structured discussion. And the idea is that while you're waiting for the bus, you try to solve the problem. It could be something that's set um, text or in a video, you try to solve it individually. Once you gather together with a group of people, then you try to solve that problem or discuss that problem in a group, in a small group. <clears throat> and then at the end of it, when the bus stops, so after you've had 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour's discussion, you then come up with a conclusion, which is then posted for other learners. So the other learners don't see the structure of your group discussion but they see the result of it which is then posted for other learners to look at so that was how we were thinking of modelling um, time limited <coughs> discussions and then the other sorts of discussions are what are called study buddies so being able to gather together with a group of people um, <coughs> who would then go on to a course and learn together and it would be like a more coherent version of that 
following so that you have a team of people that you work through and the NovoEd platform do that reasonably well um, they form people into teams uh, their platform is more based around workplace learning <coughs> and CPD and they form people into teams who then do a project throughout the course in fact two weeks time I'm going to talk with the pedagogy team at NovoEd to see about how they do that and how they're developing it so I think both of those sorts of discussions um, would be a possibility for, for future learn but also for our new courses any other questions? It's no 12 o'clock yet. Okay, yeah, one final, final yeah. one. Sorry. Thank you. Just a quick one. Um, I was wondering um, the interactions um, you have the students get into are very text-based. So I was wondering if you thought about of any uh, future thoughts on other kinds of media of interaction as uh, audio or more of a visual kind of interaction. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I should have said that some of the courses are much more video, video, visual. So there's been uh, programming courses where they've not only shared their computer code but also shared the results of doing uh, visual design, so creative programming, where they've shared um, the results of their programming work. Um, one of the more interesting ones to me was one on dental imaging. So it wasn't you know, a fairly small course, but there's still about seven or 8,000 people from around the world who were dentists who were interested in dental imaging. And as part of that course, they were asked to upload photos of bad teeth. Um, so as dentists, you know, their prized photos of bad teeth, uh, which were uploaded. And one of the comments that we got on the course was from somebody in, um, what was it, Paraguay, I think, who said, I'm a dentist, uh, and I want to set up a dental teaching practice and up until now I haven't had any images to work with. Suddenly I've got this store of images that the other learners have contributed. Thank you so much, I can now set up this dental practice based on these dental images. So there have been, and for audio there was the, um, one of the courses on, um, oh, what, was it, what was it on? It was on um, sound engineering and people had to um, upload um, soundscapes and the more recent one on filmmaking, um, there were some people uh, on that, of course, put on by the National Film School. That was fascinating because people were uploading their short films that they'd made, um, including as well some of them either on YouTube or on links to other sites like Vimeo. Uh, and there were some really interesting discussions around the films that the, uh, the learners on that course had made. So it's... Yeah, it's not just text. Some of the courses are much more uh, visual or audio-based. Mm -hmm. well, thank you very much. We'll give another round. <laughs> okay, so we'll finish our event for today. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, see you again next week. <laughs>